Hello, debt levels across the world are breaking records. The IMF expects them to reach 125% of GDP in advanced economies this year and 65% in emerging economies. What sort of impact is that going to have on the functioning of global markets? Who is going to manage it all? In today's episode, we take a closer look at the burden of debt, the impact it's having on the credibility of governments and central banks, the response of markets, and how all of that should be taken into account when it comes to portfolio construction. I'm Richard Edgar, and this is Fidelity International's Rich Pickings, the Asset Allocation Podcast. Well, joining me are Salman Ahmed, Global Head of Macro and Strategic Asset Allocation, Charlotte Harrington, a Portfolio Manager in our Multi-Asset Team, and Tim Foster, Fixed Income Portfolio Manager. Welcome to you all. Good morning, morning Richard. Jolly good. Now, we're talking about debt in this episode, and it was Shakespeare who wrote, Neither a borrower nor a lender be. And I wonder, what's the best advice about money you've ever been given? Charlotte, coming to you first. Well, I think working in multi-asset, I have to say that um, diversification is has got to be quite high on the list for advice for individuals investing. Very sensible. It applies to pretty much everybody, doesn't it? Um, and Tim, what about you? Um, I think, uh, yeah, for me, probably if it's if it's too good to be true, don't believe it. I mean, I guess that goes for, <laughs> you know, markets where sort of uh, central bank intervention of suppress volatility applies in all sorts of all, all walks of life. It does indeed. And Salman, what's the best advice you've ever had about uh, about money? I think the best advice I have gotten is that never trust the hype. <laughs> Always do your uh, homework, and and you know there's no sh- there are no shortcuts. No, I think these are all very sound uh, uh, words of advice to be applied um, throughout life generally. But um, let's move on. Shakespeare also said that brevity is the soul of wit. So um, let's get on with the uh, the main program. And Salman, could you start us off? What is the global macroeconomic view at the moment as we record this? Um, Richard, I think uh, as the pandemic shock happened last year in 2020, I think we are now starting to enter a phase uh, where the macro legacy of that pandemic is getting clearer. This cycle is like no other. It's it's moving at a very rapid pace. Uh, The government's uh, interventions which took place last year and continue, especially in the U.S., uh, with the big fiscal programs, are shaping many, many key macro variables. And I think the two I would highlight, first one is debt. We already had a lot of debt going into the pandemic shock. It increased even further because of the government interventions. And and given, if you look at the, what is happening in the U.S., uh, uh, that projection means that, you know, those debt burdens are going to continue to rise. So there's a question mark on how far the debt, this debt burden can rise and if, if it is sustainable. And then relatedly, after many, many years, it seems like some key fundamental factors behind the disinflationary force of last 10 years are changing. So those two, I think, factors are probably the most important one as we enter this post-pandemic macro uh, landscape. Well, I think you've um, you've highlighted the one of the main things we want to talk about today, actually, because when you've got all of that spending, the fiscal flush that's um, uh, that, that's that's running through economies, the economies are reopening. Um, people have got money to spend. Um, it all points to an economic liftoff, but very possibly with inflation, 
So on inflation, what are you expecting? Where do you see this path going? Look, I think the short-term path is, is pretty clear. We are going to get uh, a bump up in inflation because of uh, base effects, uh, because there was a big fall in energy prices last year when the lockdowns uh, uh, first came on the global space. But the critical question for us is that if we look at the current fiscal programs and, and most of the, uh, that money is going into household sector bank accounts, uh, the critical question is, once the reopening happens, how much of that money gets spent? Uh, and then, relatedly, it's, it's, it's the capacity uh, utilization. There is a huge uncertainty around and disagreement uh, within policymakers and the, uh, uh, and the private sector on what kind of capacity, excess capacity, is available in the system. Our own assessment is that if you look at the Fed's forecast for 2021, which is 2.4%, uh, we think the risks are squarely on the upside, that we may get inflation towards 3% this year as this fiscal stimulus passes through the system. And we do also think that, uh, that the capacity constraints will start biting earlier than is the current uh, you know, consensus. This is a cyclical picture. There are arguments which are shifting on the structural side as well. So the, some of the key forces behind the structural uh, disinflationary force uh, we saw over the last uh, you know, couple of decades at least uh, were globalization, technology, and the role of China's labor force, which uh, enter, you know, entered the global system. All of those forces are reversing as well. And let's not forget that central banks now are actively asking for inflation. And this hasn't happened since the 1960s. And we think that's related to the debt burdens. But that structural picture is also in a big flux. And then we may, we may run the risk that there is a sustained upswing in inflation expectations as this fiscal stimulus passes through the system. So inflation is on the way. Thank you very much for that, um, Salman. And Charlotte, let's come to you. Uh, obviously, it's of central importance to you as a portfolio manager. Can you explain how you, um, how you react as, as we get these forecasts? Yeah, so I think, you know, if we take this to sort of the, the extreme, as it were, and we start thinking about how you'd want to position a portfolio on the basis of, of high inflation, and of course, there's a sort of a path to getting there. We, we might not be there yet, but if that's the direction of travel, then, you know, asset classes will behave differently. Um, and, and generally, you are better off in, in real assets. So commodities, equities that have sort of commodity-linked earning streams. Um, you'd prefer inflation-linked bonds to nominal bonds. Uh, and again, things like property. Though, though that's the sort of tilt that you might like to have in the kind of composition of your asset mix. That's a multi-asset um, portfolio. Tim, within fixed income, you focus on inflation-linked um, assets. So this is your, your bread and butter. Um, last time we saw inflation was a decade ago. Is this going to be the same or different? I mean, I think, I'd, yes, I'd, I'd echo the, the optimism to some extent of the previous speakers. You know, definitely think that obviously we'll get the rapid run-up in inflation in the next couple of months and then a dropping off as base effects fall. But definitely, you know, share Salman's um, uh, thoughts on, you know, longer-term sort of secular change about deglobalization, the Chinese workforce and so on. So definitely think in that kind of medium and longer term picture, we're, we're moving towards an environment of core that's higher than it has been over the last 10 years. You know, maybe more like, so the last 10 years, sort of US CPI average 1.7, you know, the last 30 was more like 2.3 and definitely think we're moving back to sort of, you know, more like the sort of, you know, 30 years rather than 10 years sort of environment. I mean, the obvious place you want to be within fixed income there is, is inflation linked bonds. There are plenty of different kind 
kind of markets that you can invest in within inflation linkers and you know good good kind of diversified mix of those different markets. I sort of stress you probably want to be at the shorter end. I think that's uh, you know the other key point here. A lot of this is dependent on central bank support and the kind of you know nexus of where that support is going to come is is sort of out to the sort of five year point of the yield curve. So we definitely kind of favour sort of five year uh, sort of inflation linked bonds over over longer dated ones. Okay, well you've brought us there onto central banks and what happens with inflation, how all this mounting debt that Salman's been talking about is managed, is a core to the Federal Reserve's policy decisions, which in turn affect markets all over the world. Now, Jerome Powell, who's the chairman of the Reserve, spoke earlier this month to reaffirm the bank's policy stance. And shortly afterwards, I caught up with our global chief investment officer, Andrew McCaffrey, to ask what he thinks it means for portfolios. First, though, here's a clip from the chair of the Fed. At the Fed, we will continue to provide the economy the support that it needs for as long as it takes. Today, the FOMC kept interest rates near zero and maintained our sizable asset purchases. Andrew, we've seen some very rapid moves in bond markets in recent weeks. What's driving these moves? Oh, I think very clearly, uh, Richard, that um, it's the perception of how inflation is um, uh, potentially developing in the system, but also I think it's growth. So at the moment, some of this is uh, you know, relatively benign in the feedback loops um, that, uh, because there is an argument that you know, with the strong reflation we, we're seeing from policy, from the way that the vaccine rollout is occurring, especially in the US, that this will lead to higher growth and um, really uh, uh, you know, being a very positive um, impact across the, the economy. But with that is that you know, yields are therefore potentially in the wrong place. And should they be just um, moved higher to support what is that uh, you know, much higher growth profile? But the residue is very much, you know, what does this mean for um, inflation in that is it as transitory as the Fed are often uh, saying, or is it something that actually then becomes much more in, embedded? And I think the markets are, uh, you know, really going through this sort of tug of war, and the, the bond uh, vigilantes are testing that last uh, uh, that last point on, um, you know, whether the inflation actually gets more traction, and what does that mean for policy as we roll through into next year. So the message from the Fed is um, those base effects, the, the comparison with a year ago, that because of that. It's just a temporary effect. Don't let it frighten the horses. Um, and they want to, they, they've got bigger things to, to worry about with employment. Yes. And, and I think that is the message that we keep hearing from them. I think that, you know, it's, it's interesting as, as well that, um, you know, when you uh, listen to that and, and the challenge that it brings when it comes back to, to the market perspective for investors is that, you know, is that correct? And, you know, will they be proved um, right to say, given the amount of pent up demand that's been created, the amount of stimulus that's been flown through? And I think this is interesting. We look forward to looking to the other side of the equation to fiscal policy. The next conversation in the US and, and still ongoing around the world is going to be around infrastructure, around green agendas. And then you're going to have the tax conversation start and how much that does or doesn't impact into this profile of keeping that growth running, bringing the debt burden down um, and uh, uh, you know, being able to, to manage uh, that over the next um, uh, few years. If somebody listening to this is having to make some decisions about their asset allocation, both in the short term and over the long term, what would you say to them as we go through what seems like quite a an important period. The real challenge around this is that what we've seen in the US is a move that we've seen in Japan, in Europe, 
Um, and that is that as you move towards that sort of zero um, and the degree to which you have that benefit of sort of bond diversification versus risk assets um, and it, it just it deteriorates. So I think the challenge becomes how you think about that sort of balanced portfolio framework and actually should you be looking at other ingredients to rather than government bonds. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't look outside bond markets. I think it means you've got to think about geography and types of risk in terms of debt. So specifically, you know, look into China, to Asia, look into where the uh, degree of discounting, the types of default profile and what you're getting paid in premium for that just look misplaced relative to some of maybe the um, developed world. So that's in fixed income markets, looking to, to new areas um, or new aspects of the fixed income market that you might not have been invested in before. You talked about other ingredients as well, though. Yeah, so I think it's important that you look at um, currency and currency exposure. We feel that uh, the the medium term is very much for the dollar being debased by this sort of ongoing, um, uh, you know, both the liquidity provision in dollars being provided by the, the Federal Reserve, but also the fiscal stimulus and the deficits that will be uh, you know, run in the US and that coming home to, to roost over time. And if that's the case, then I think the other thing I'll look into is, is currency exposure and alternatives to that. So looking to gold and um, proxies for for that uh, you know considering even you know uh, the the cycle as we see it in this sort of growth reflation profile you know where in the commodities profile you should look as well because when you think about the asset allocation and combine it with uh, you know climate change and looking through how that is going to accelerate this year then other things are that you know this is going to be a very big boon of the linked agendas you know of some of these you know, core materials that will be very important for fulfilling that infrastructure and climate um, repositioning that we have to go through as a global economy. And that was Andrew McCaffrey, Fidelity's Global Chief Investment Officer there, talking on allocating in response to the Fed. Now, you can hear that interview in full on this podcast where it was published um, a little bit earlier. But we're going to come back to asset allocation in a little while. First of all, this position that central banks find themselves in. Salman, we've heard there how they're playing a crucial role in debt stability. There's also been quite a bit of instability in markets of late. Just after Powell's speech, the Fed announced that they're reimposing bank capital ratios to pre-COVID levels. So that effectively tightens financial conditions. What, what happens next? Will the, will the Fed do, do anything else, do you think? Well, if you look at, uh, or at least our read of the reaction function, and I, I have to comment on that. I think one of the major reasons why this indigestion, which Andrew was uh, highlighting, is happening in the bond market, is that people don't have a unified view on what the Fed's new reaction function is. That didn't used to be the case. I mean, uh, there was a dual mandate. Uh, if you asked everybody in the market space and analyst space, right, I mean, they would give you a, like more or less the same answer, which meant that expectations were managed. So since the FAIT, or the Flexible Average Inflation Targeting Framework, was introduced last year, there was some proactive uncertainty which was introduced in this framework to give them the flexibility as these fiscal programs are put in place. So as we stand right now, I think the critical question is, what is the true reaction function? In our view, if you look at the debt burdens as they stand right now and do the projections, we think that maintaining the servicing cost of the debt is an important part of the objective function, even if the central banks openly don't talk about it. Uh, just to give you a sense of the numbers, even though the U.S. public debt to GDP ratio has increased from 40% in 2007 to more than 100% right now, 
the DSR or the debt service ratio is the, at, at the same level. Why? It's because of central bank policies. You, you mean there that it doesn't cost any more? Uh, it doesn't to, cost to any more, exactly, debt. as opposed to GDP, even though you have you know, more than doubled your debt load. Because it's interest a, rates are so because low. Because interest rates are so low. So it's an important factor we have to realize, and it is not the private sector who has done it. And if you look at the projections which have come through from the uh, CBO, which is the, uh, the bipartisan uh, Congress budget office, they recently published their 30-year projections. Uh, under current law, public debt-to-GDP ratio will move from around 100% right now to more than 200% in 30 years' time. This is you know, head and shoulders above the levels we saw in World War II levels. It is unsustainable situation. So, so we cannot segregate the fact that the central banks are not playing a role. I think that is not acknowledging the elephant in the room. And to answer your question more specifically, we think that if this surge in bond yields we are uh, witnessing right now uh, becomes more real rate driven. So I think if you if I were to link back to Andrew's point, that it, it seems that it is less driven by growth expectations, but more by the fact that the, the market thinks that the Fed is making a mistake then we think that the Fed will have to do some kind of a duration extension or an operation twist to calm market nerves. And, and the reason why we are not seeing this action right now or currently is that financial conditions are still quite easy. However, if they tighten uh, sharply, we think the Fed will have to respond and, and, and do something tangible because just talking about it is not going to work. So the flexibility that you talked about, that gives the Fed the ability or the, uh, the excuse, if you like, to, to look through um, a, a sudden blip in, in inflation. But what if they're wrong? And what if uh, things really do take off? What, what happens then? Richard, this is the multi-trillion question, dollar question you ask, <laughs> because, uh, because right now, as you rightly pointed out, uh, the thesis is that this is all temporary. Uh, this is not going to last. Uh, but there are many factors we need to consider. The first one is, is of course, the structural trends and how they are changing. Globalization, China, which, uh, which we think played a big role in the disinflation over the last uh, you know, few decades. Then the second is, is fiscal uh, activism. The kind of fiscal stimulus we are seeing are unprecedented in the U.S. Uh, we can't beat around the bush around that. Thirdly, you have a central bank now uh, with the flexibility you mentioned changing its reaction function, asking for inflation, hungry for inflation. So all those three factors seem to be changing, but whether it will embed itself into a permanent reality, that remains to be seen. But we have to be cognizant that factors are in a flux. It's, it's a very much a changing world, isn't it? Charlotte, when you consider that, you know, the Fed can't ignore, as, as someone was saying, it can't ignore the vast amounts of debt. Um, does this mean that they're now becoming, um, well, central banks generally, they're just becoming instruments of government because their role is now to help administration service those huge debt burdens? So inflation would be one way of eroding um, the, the debt. They'll just let it keep rising, won't they? I think probably um, a lot of this is quite context specific. So at this stage, when inflation is below their target, and, and obviously we now know they're shooting for a kind of a modest overshoot, then of course they can be can, can support this very easy policy, which allows um, fiscal spending to come through with without too many hurdles. The potential for a sort of personality change at the Fed as and when they achieve their modest inflation overshoot can't be underestimated. Um, and, and I think what's been described by others here is just the sort of narrow path that the Fed are trying to 
uh, walk here. You know, they, they want a modest overshoot of inflation. They don't want inflation expectations to run away. Uh, and, and they really want to avoid the kind of deflationary scenario. And I think just one thing to add to this is, is the importance of fiscal, um, not just in terms of how much the central banks support it, but also the appetite for it. Uh, and when we look across the world, we do see appetite for big fiscal spending in the US, probably more so or certainly as much, and if not more so than, than the rest of the world. But I think the critical question for for the inflation story is, will they kind of continue to double down once the pandemic is um, calmed down? And I think at the moment, there are some signs that they, they are going to continue along that path, but it's but it's certainly not a kind of a done deal is, is, is the way that I would think about it. And you talked about a change at the top. And one development that's happened over the past, um, well, few months is that you've got two former central bank governors who are now in government. Can you explain what's happened there and why that might be significant? Well, I think it's really interesting, actually. So Draghi, an extremely well-regarded central banker in Europe, uh, Yellen, likewise in the US, have now moved into government. And if you think about what central banks have been crying out for, for for many years now, it's more fiscal spending. So these people as central bankers were asking for more fiscal. They've now moved into the government and they are now able to implement that policy. And I think that that is significant and, and worth taking account of. Uh, and of course, you know, there's, there's more than just those two people in that make these decisions. But but I think I think it's relevant. And Tim, the era of big spending um, with with support from central banks and former central bankers who, who are now doing some of that spending. Charlotte was talking about the um, the narrow path. I mean, how narrow is it? And does it keep you up at night worrying that they might put a foot wrong and that that might trigger something in, in markets? Well, I think that's really that. Yeah, that is an absolutely key question. At the moment, the market is giving the Fed and, and other central bankers a great deal of credibility, actually. You know, you look at how steep, for example, the curve has got between fives and tens. So absolutely, the market is pricing in very little kind of uh, uh, tightening from the Fed, say, you know, from that initial period. And at the same time, it's pricing in, um, you know, pretty decent return to longer term sort of reasonable growth and inflation trends. And as well, if you look at the break even curve, so what the market's pricing for inflation, that's that's very downward sloping now. So again, the market's giving the Fed full credit for their ability to get, a bit, you know, inflation that's safely a bit above target, but that then then sort of falls back to target over over 10 years or so. So um in many ways, I think the Fed have got they've got a bit of a surfeit of credibility at the moment, and and yes, it does worry me that that, that could be perhaps making them a bit complacent. Because you know, to think back to Salman's point about the very high debt loads, it's very clear that companies and governments can't afford much in the way of high debt costs. So, you know, the sort of continued sustainability of that debt. I mean, I saw that you know example for the UK government. I think that the, the, the sort of debt service cost over GDP is at a three hundred year low. Absolutely depends on the central banks being able to walk that very very narrow. Path, you know, generating a bit of above target inflation, but 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 nothing much more than that. So, fixed income portfolio managers famously are good at worrying. Um, what could go wrong? Well, we talked a little bit about the risk of kind of above inflation that you know turns out to be sort of a, a little bit even more than the above target inflation that the Fed have in mind. So, I guess that's I guess that's one risk. That's a risk on one side. Um, you've still got to bear in mind there are plenty of other risks on the sort of downside for economic growth. You know, new virus variants. Perhaps the fiscal stimulus takes longer to be implemented. I mean, infrastructure spending takes years and years to to get done. Um, 
perhaps people don't spend. You know, we're talking about the very high accumulated savings that people have got, sort of nearly 10% of GDP, for example, in, in the US and the UK. Perhaps they don't spend as much of that as expected on, on, on services when, when economies unlock. So there's also a risk kind of on, on, on the sort of low growth sort of side. And then that probably really is a very bleak outcome because it is a, it is a sort of low productivity and low growth uh, environment for the long term. Um, I just jump in on on some of the things that Tim said, which is that you know from an investment perspective, the more credibility that's given to the central banks, the more that's priced into the markets, the more you you worry, um, just because the downside is, is is that much bigger. So in the very short run, I do think that those considerations around the potential for this not to pan out as as maybe our baseline view suggests is is important from a kind of short term positioning perspective. Okay, well, let's have a look at economic growth. Um, Salman, what does this context that we've heard about until this point, what impact does that have on the way that economies around the world will grow? I mean, perhaps starting with um, uh, with the US. The way uh, we would conceptualize it is on policy and the virus. I think both are very important here. Um, and when it comes to the US, uh, both, uh, both the virus trajectory so far because of the vaccination program and, of course, the policy is head and shoulders above everybody else now. Uh, we have been above consensus for a while now, and we have been flagging it very aggressively uh, that uh, this, uh, this dynamic is shifting uh, post the Georgia election. We think that the normal growth in the US can top 10% this year, which is you know, real growth plus inflation. That's... Uh, it's an extraordinary development in itself. If we go to, for example, UK is the next uh, one, which is very positively sensitive to, to the reopening. And of course, the pent-up savings, I think uh, Tim mentioned. And every spurts of, of easing of lockdowns we see, we see the consumer coming out. So it's not a theoretical discussion anymore, in, at least to our minds, that the consumer will not spend money. I think every easing, even if very short-lived, we see the consumer coming out. And then our own analysts through their surveys pick up uh, uh, very strong signs of pent-up demand. So we have data to back that view. So what, what, what do you think in the UK then? You, you, you were saying that was the next... So again, a positive, you know, above consensus view on, on growth. Where we are getting worried again is Eurozone. They messed up the vaccination program. But having said that, there is, of course, a tale of two economies within uh, happening within the Eurozone as well. So if you look at the manufacturing data, it's doing really, really well. And, and the you know, global manufacturing sector itself is doing ex- excellence. It's the services sector, which is still under pressure. Where we are, have a more, uh, you know, clearer story appearing is China. Uh, there is, I think, compared to a few months ago, the consensus is catching up to the reality that the, uh, the, uh, the policy stance is tightening faster than they thought late last year. And, and this is the 100-year anniversary of a Congress party, so the political considerations will be important. But we think that second half, we may see more signs of financial tightening. Within EM, there's a lot more heterogeneity uh, going on. Uh, the virus trajectories are different. Uh, the vaccination programs and the rollout and speeds are becoming very, very different. And we are looking at, for example, dimensions like which economies are dependent on tourism, which are dependent on uh, services sector, and, and that will play up uh, quite significantly. That, that complex picture, though, it is very different in, in each economy. I mean, 10% growth in the US is extraordinary. Um, with very loose conditions, and then tightening, you think, in China. Charlotte, we heard Andrew talk about the importance of currencies 
uh, for investors. And we've got, you know, someone's talking there about the US leading the growth charge there. Will that lead to the dollar strengthening? Or the, will the tightening conditions in places like China, will that um, have a different effect? So I think certainly if we look year to date, we've seen some, some dollar strength, really. Um, so if you look at just sort of the euro dollar index, euros, um, euros come off quite a bit. And that's in quite sharp contrast to, to 2020, where the dollar was very weak. So it does seem to be feeding through that the, the kind of the strength of the U.S., um, versus the rest of the world is is leading to some some dollar strength at least in in the near term. I think on on the China point, it's extremely important for the the direction of the broad dollar, and when that kind of China slowdown really comes into focus, uh, that that could really you know impact the dollar quite a bit. Uh, at this stage, um, it is very much a sort of later in the year type of a concern when we look at um, credit into the economy, it's still that kind of credit impulse is still quite high. It's just directionally we would expect it to come off. Uh, and then from a sort of asset market perspective, you've got some very China-specific um, issues around SOEs and, and defaults and very kind of uh, specific events that are impacting asset markets, but perhaps are front-running the actual economic slowdown. Tim, what do you think? Picking up both of those uh, earlier points, I think uh, certainly in the short term, I'm, I'm actually a little bit optimistic on the dollar. I think that I think that strength could continue. Uh, just pointing to the faster vaccine uh, roller that that, that, that Salman mentioned. You know, I think as well actually the level of yields now. You know, with the with the big increase in yields that we've seen in, in the U.S. probably makes U.S. dollars quite attractive on an unhedged basis. Um, so yes, so uh, certainly in the short term, quite like that. So Tim, staying with you, I want to talk about portfolio construction and how you think about these big themes when you're um, allocating within your portfolio. So managing the challenge of low yields, um, the traditional protection that's um, deteriorating um, in, in, in government bonds. Um, are you looking elsewhere to find the balance between the two? Well, I think at the moment, I mean, I, I mentioned index-linked bonds are obviously a good place to gain protection if inflation does come through more than it's priced in the moment. And I'd sort of stress the sort of shorter end there. So about not too short, sort of, you know, sort of five years is probably, probably the sweet spot there because then you get the same inflation protection and you're not so exposed if real yields also go up as well. Um, I actually think it's not a bad time to think about adding some nominal duration. I mean, we've seen a big increase so far this year. So we've pretty much repeated, uh, you know, in, in in sort of forward space, we've basically rerun the sort of 2013 uh, taper tantrum already. So that's obviously bringing up a bit of value. You know, I think there's actually quite a lot priced in for the Fed now. So, um, you know, first hike uh, sort of early 2023 and somewhere between two and three hikes, you know, over the course of 2023 actually feels like quite a lot, given that there, you know, there's, there's something that could always always go wrong with the, with the sort of fairly rosy kind of central central outlook that we're looking. So, yeah, so in, in, in sort of rate space, I think, yes, first of all, kind of five-year duration uh, linkers. And secondly, actually, not a bad time to add, add some nominal duration here. And Salman, Andrew was pointing to Asia and specifically China as a good place to be buying bonds. And not all investors consider China alone. They, they, they have tended to think about it as part of their allocation to, um, to Asia. But is now the time to change that view? Definitely, uh, Richard. A lot of our work uh, suggests that China 
uh, fixed income actually can be compared to developed market fixed income. And, and I think Andrew's uh, point is quite pertinent one because we have a lot of evidence now showing that uh, bonds in Europe and Japan specifically are uh, are not performing the, the the role bonds should 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 do, which is you know provider returns. Provider or diversification, and and okay, there is liquidity there, but you know why not hold cash if you're not going to get any return or diversification, if you will. So so when we did our analysis, we found that Ch- China government bonds uh, volatility, long-term volatility, is comparable to developed market bond, uh, 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 you know, volatility uh, calibrations, and 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 what we also found was that w- what you do need is just a expected return of one percent in Chinese government bonds, for uh, for that asset to be included in your strategic asset allocation uh, framework, uh, and 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 the current yield in Chinese government bonds is above three percent. It is one of the few markets with that kind of low wall, which offers positive real rates. So. Uh, a strong, compelling case we can see from a strategic asset allocation perspective. It's a big market, $16 trillion worth, and it's st- just starting to open up. So foreign ownership is only 6%. Uh, average EMs is usually at around 30%. Even if it goes from 6 to 12, it's a big, big shift given the size of the market. It is, it is a big market that you can't ignore. Charlotte, um, what are your thoughts? So I think probably um, just Picking up on on both of those topics, really, um, quite aligned actually with with Tim in in the short run. Uh, just just thinking here that uh, that the dollar certainly versus some of the low yielders like the euro can hold its own. Uh, and similarly, again, short run thinking that nominal yields here are much better value than than they have been for a while. Um, and and it you know relates back to that sort of debt burden point that that was made earlier. Uh, as well as some of the very near-term risks around around the virus and so on. So, so you know, th- those are quite sort of short-term perspective views. Uh, and, and then on China, I think, you know, we, we've already mentioned the bond uh, index inclusion, which uh, seems to be garnering a lot of attention. Uh, and, you know, separately to that, there there are some very sort of specific idiosyncratic elements to, to Chinese assets more broadly, which are, are probably a, a sort of a separate topic, if you like. And... Um- more broadly, just a quick, we've spoken an awful lot about um, fixed income uh, today, but what about equities? Um, what are you thinking at the moment, given where markets are? Very, very similar, really, just that, that in the short run, things have come a very long way. And that risk that, that we've already mentioned, which is that we've had a sort of taper tantrum type move, and it hasn't really wobbled risk assets particularly. I mean, you've seen global equities hold their own, maybe go a bit sideways, commodities come off a bit. I, I think there is some some short run kind of positioning concerns. But, you know, longer term, I think the base view does does suggest that that, that kind of solid growth and inflation outlook is broadly supportive of, of equity markets. Well, thank you. You mentioned the base view, the, the, the core view, if you like. Um, Salman, can you just um, very briefly wrap up the, the current um, base view at uh, at Fidelity. I think uh, uh, the 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 way we see the macro world is is one of differentiated reflation. So some countries, as I mentioned already, are uh, going to go through a proper reflationary force. Uh, the second one is on policy. There is elevated level of uncertainty around policy, uh, especially with the big fiscal programs and there are reaction function points uh, we mentioned. The way it pans out can be both, uh, creates both positive and, and negative risks for risky assets, at least in the short term. And if I were to map our you know, uh, views from, from that perspective in terms of the global investment implications, 
uh, we are positive on equities, but we are taking a more nuanced stance. Uh, so, so we are focused on, for example, UK. Uh, within styles, it's still a story of rotation. And then within EM, uh, there is a much more differentiated case to be made. Uh, what are we concerned about? We are concerned about, uh, 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 you know, the macro tightening in, in China. Uh, we are concerned about the fact that in the short term, the central bank's credibility gets even more tested than it is at the moment. And uh, as, as the center of gravity for the yields, at least in the short term, is to the, towards, uh, towards higher yields. Until the Fed, you know, comes into play, we don't see, you know, a tangible response from the market coming through. So overall, still focused on the reflation thesis, but risks are emerging. Okay, thank you very much for that summary. We're going to get a little bit more detail now, because it's time to play the rich pickings parlour game that is hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? Tim, why don't I come to you first on this one? Well, I guess I've said it a few times already, but uh, you, you know, have. quite buy uh, you know buy sort of five year <laughs> tips, a five year index linked bonds. Uh, probably buy a bit of nominal bonds as well. Actually, I think you know certainly in the short term, I think this is a good a good time to do that. I'd probably sell maybe your very lowest rated high yield. I think you know that sort of single B triple C uh, sort of spread. I think is basically the tightest now since 2014. Still, plenty of things that can go wrong, and you know so far we've actually seen companies being quite bond holder friendly as well. I think that you know that 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 could change actually if conditions stay good so okay and Salman I think uh, I'll start with what I would drop so if if you are a European investor or a Japanese investor who doesn't need to hold government bonds they should think about reassessing why they're, they're holding that asset because it, uh, those instruments are not behaving like assets and it, that, that in itself creates a question of how do we replace that uh, safe safe asset in portfolios and there are multiple avenues, I think, uh, whether it's about return or diversification. But we are, again, I will highlight from a strategic asset allocation perspective, the case for China bonds have to be looked into from a, from a more lo- long horizon perspective. Charlotte. So, Richard, my hot cake is the Japanese yen uh, and my hot potato is the dollar and the euro. So essentially funding a long yen position out of the dollar and the euro uh, and that trade should do well if we get a, any sort of near-term wobbles in, in risk assets uh, and if nominal duration um, at least takes a pause and maybe consolidates a bit from here. Uh, and finally, positioning is pretty stretched in, in short yen positions. So uh, that's my hot cake and hot potato. Great cooking. Thank you very much indeed. And that brings us to the end of this episode. There's lots more investment discussion on both our award-winning podcast channels, Rich Pickings and Fidelity Answers. Just search for those titles in your podcast app and do rate us if you feel so inclined. And you can read more from our contributors on all the topics we've covered today at fidelityinternational.com. So thank you to my guests, Charlotte Harrington, Salman Ahmed, Tim Foster and Andrew McCaffrey. The producer is Seb Morton-Clark with technical support from Alex Wilcox and Madison Fletcher. From all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.